Um, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help, not just for me physically, uh, but just for all of us spiritually. Because we come here today not because God is in need of us, but because we're in need of him. And so let's go pray now and ask the Lord who is faithful uh, to help us in this time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we know that it's good that we would acknowledge our weakness and our insufficiency. Because we know that you have promised that your grace is sufficient and your power is displayed and made perfect through our weakness. And so we pray that that would happen even now. As we look to the Bible, we desperately need your help. We pray that your spirit would come and that your spirit would minister to us this morning. Fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered here today. And we pray that you would fill all of us with your spirit and move in our hearts and our minds so that we might receive your truth and so that our faith might be stirred and sustained. Come and meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm hearing a little bit of buzzing, just being real. I don't know if anybody else is, so just going to make that announcement and acknowledge that, but then we're going to move forward. So as many in the room know, sometimes things happen on social media. Amen, somebody. Social media, it is an interesting thing. There's some bad about it. There's some good about it, too. So I, uh, I by no means have a massive social media following or anything like that, so don't misunderstand me. But I, I post mostly stuff about you know, theological truth, biblical things, um, some football stuff on occasion. But I'm surprised sometimes by the reaction that some of the things that I put up receive. The reaction is, is often one of, hey, bro, like some of these things you're saying about the Bible or about the gospel or about justification or whatever, they seem like this tenet of something new. Like this is a new idea or something. There are various movements within the church and sometimes because of my age and theological convictions, I'm sort of lumped in with other kind of movements that go on. You must be a proponent of this or this. And I just want to kind of right now, um, in part by way of introduction, but in part because this is on my mind and it's relevant to everything we do at CBC and it's certainly relevant to our time today in 1 John. Three things, to proclaim these three things. One, justification by faith in Christ alone, meaning that you are declared righteous by God completely based on the merit of Jesus Christ received by faith apart from anything, anything that you ever do, that's one. Two, to proclaim that sanctification, the process of being made more like Christ, flows out of justification. So what I mean by that is that you being transformed, you being made more holy, only flows out of your justified state. It only comes out of the fact and the reality that you have been declared righteous, counted righteous, and pardoned in Jesus. And from that comes your sanctification. So in other words, to emphasize your righteousness in Christ, 
does not lead to immorality. It leads to sanctification. Third, to proclaim that sanctification is as certain as your present justification and your future glorification. To proclaim all of those things is not new. To proclaim those things is historically Protestant. And anybody who thinks it's new does not understand. Protestantism does not understand biblical gospel truth. And I'm not trying to be arrogant or condescending. But what we're doing here, you guys remember the old Pop-Tarts commercial? So hot, they're cool. So cool, they're hot. You remember that? Anybody with me? Anybody a child of like the late 80s, early 90s? Come on now. So hot, they're cool. So cool, they're hot. What we're preaching here at CBC is so old that people think it's new. It's so old. Like I'm talking predating America old, right? Like 1500s and earlier old that it just seems novel. Anyway, that's just a little kind of like pastoral diatribe really quickly from me. But it matters, friends. This is like the anchor and the ground of what we're doing. And it's the anchor and the ground of your standing before God. These truths matter. So we herald these things here at CBC. It's relevant every Sunday. It's relevant as we look back to John's letter, uh, the letter of 1 John, I should say, his first letter recorded for us in the New Testament outside of his gospel. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to the letter of 1 John. We're going to be spending our time today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. But I will read chapter 1 and verse 5 on through chapter 2 and verse 11 for us here in just a moment. After I read the text, I'm going to make a couple of more comments that are sort of kind of chalking the field, introductory in nature. And then I want us to consider the passage verse by verse, essentially. We're going to walk through it. And then there are three other points for just deeper consideration that I want to make after that. So that's our plan for our time together this morning. But now before we go any further, let me read God's word for us, starting in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So like I said, I've got a few more very brief chalking the field introductory comments to make. This is our weekly reminder of the context of 1 John, right? This is never bad. Remember that there's false teaching going on in this church. There is a lot of kind of blending of Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine, leading to what we've called in sort of a technical way, proto-Gnostic thought that was just kind of Platonic, Platonist or Platonic, I should say, kind of dualistic view of the world, a spiritual plane, a material plane. What happened in the physical plane was insignificant, really. What happened at the spiritual level was significant. And so therefore, the sins of the body were not a real concern. This was leading to legitimate lawlessness within the church. But not only is this false teaching producing lawlessness in the church, there also is the issue of apostasy, the issue of people leaving the faith and leaving the church. We can discern all of this from the context of 1 John, and we also know just within the context of first century history on into the second century and beyond, we know of Gnostic thought and its prevalency. Now, John's tone is something else that we've considered in the three sermons so far in this letter. What's his tone? What's his kind of mode of communication? Is he in angry prophet mode? We've thought about the fact that he's not. He's in more of a protective big brother kind of mode as he's writing this letter to believers. He's writing to believers within a church that is under siege from false teaching and apostasy. So he's pastoral and he's tender. And then I want us really quickly to not forget last week's text, right? chapter 1 and verse 8 through chapter 2 and verse 2. The work of Jesus Christ in the place of the believer shows up very early in the letter of 1 John. And so we'll be considering today's text and certainly the entire letter in light of all of those things. We come with those things in our backpack as we look to the passage today. Now, public service announcement. I've been quite clear that I think John's main aim in this letter is not to smoke out nominal believers in the church, but his aim is to comfort and reassure the redeemed. Now, I will speak today and throughout this series to nominal Christianity, to that reality, right? To the reality that there are many people who profess Christ who are not Christians. I'll acknowledge it. I'll speak to it. I'll try to be clear when I do. But I aim in terms of an overarching tone and tenor of this sermon and even this series to have John's very pastoral tone. So that's just kind of truth and advertising for you. So now let's look to the text. We're going to make our way through these verses uh, just one by one and consider them together. Put your eyes on verse three of chapter two. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The hymn in that verse most clearly is Jesus. We know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. So we, we know that we're legitimate 
We know that we really have come to know the Lord Jesus if we obey his commandments. It's very straightforward. This sounds very much like the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. It's a very straightforward verse. It requires not much from me in terms of unpacking or exposition. Put your eyes on verse four. Contrasting verse here. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So you know that you've come to know Christ if you keep his commandments. If you say you know Jesus, but you don't keep his commandments, you lie. And the truth is not in you. Again, very straightforward. Put your eyes on verse five. But whoever keeps his word, right? whoever keeps his commands, in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now just for a moment on that phrase, in him, the love of God is perfected. Because that love of God, the way that that's phrased, you could understand that one of two ways. I don't necessarily think either is wrong. Okay, like I think both have some legitimate application. You could understand that meaning our love for God or God's love for us, right? I'm going to go with the latter and let me explain what I mean. I understand John to be saying that whoever keeps Christ's word, whoever keeps Christ's commands in him truly, God's love for us is perfected. It's not that God's love needs to be perfected in that his love is imperfect. What I mean is this, the word there that is translated perfected carries with it a connotation of a goal being accomplished, right? A perfect end being reached. That's the idea. So if we keep his commands, the perfect goal, the perfect aim of God's love is being realized in us. That's how I understand that verse. With this in view, John is saying that whoever keeps the word of Christ, the love of God is accomplishing its goal. And it is God's love for us and in us that is the primary issue here. This is in step with the biblical teaching wholesale and even what John writes elsewhere in this letter. He will write what? We love because he first loved us. The love of God for us and in us is always the initiator of our growth. It is always the initiator of our obedience. And so that's just my take. You can judge my exposition. If you understood it as our love for God is being perfected, that's not wrong. In that as we are growing and being sanctified, our love for God and our affection for God grows. That's true. Both are true. I think the emphasis here, though, is on God's love in us accomplishing its perfect aim. Put your eyes on the second part of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in Him. Again, in Him being in Christ. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we know that we're in Christ if the things that characterized him during his life on earth characterize us. All right, so we've heard obey, keep his commandments, right? Walk as Christ walked. But what all does that entail? John is about to continue to unpack this for us. He's about to explain it further. Verse seven, put your eyes there. This is a continuous argument, right? Like in the old, in the original, there's no like headings like there is in your ESV Bible, right? So it just kind of keeps going. Beloved, he says, 
I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what John is doing here in verse 7 and following is explaining further, giving us more detail. He's fleshing it out more for us, what it means to keep Christ's commandments and to walk as Christ walked. Here we go. He says, I'm not writing anything new to you. I'm not writing a new commandment to you at all. I'm writing you something, in fact, that's quite old, an old commandment. Then he does say, what I'm writing to you is something that you have heard from the beginning. Right? It's from the beginning of your time as a believer. You've heard this. This is not novel. This is not new. At the same time, while it's old, it is new. He's saying both things. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. This commandment is true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. A couple of observations just briefly here. One, on the new commandment that's old. This, we should understand, is a direct reference to the words of Christ in John 13. There's a reason we read that together today. Jesus says there, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, we're going to consider this in more detail later. But when Jesus says, a new commandment I'm giving to you, Christ in no way was contradicting what had come before. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? He in no way taught anything that was contradictory to what had been revealed prior. So when he says it's a new commandment, he's not saying I'm changing, I'm flipping the script. What he's saying is I'm framing it perhaps in a different way. I'm summarizing the law in a unique way. And we'll think about that some later. Actually, in some detail we will. But then the second piece is this. Where John says this commandment is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think we should understand this as just a simple pointing to the fact that a new era has dawned in the church, right? With the coming of Messiah and the establishment of the church, there is this thing called the new covenant reality that is coming to be. Jesus by John is called what? In John chapter one of this gospel, Jesus is called the true light. Messiah, the true light, has come into the world. The new covenant era has dawned. God is making all things new through Jesus, and the darkness is passing away. Christ saw to that. You'll often hear it said that Jesus dealt a mortal blow to Satan, to sin and death, when he came the first time. It's true. It's a legitimate biblical way to describe it. The darkness has ultimately been defeated and is being defeated. And it is certain that Christ will be victorious. God, by his spirit, is accomplishing the new covenant reality of love for one another in the church. That's what John is saying in verse 8. Let's continue just trucking through these verses. Put our eyes on verse 9 now. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, where John goes immediately after verse 8 does also just reiterate and make clear that John is pointing to John 13. When he says, I'm not writing anything new to you, right? It's an old commandment, but on the one hand, it is a new commandment. Love your brother. Love each other, right? He's pointing to the words of Christ from that last night that he was on earth. 
Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, verse 9. This is just like what we were thinking about before. If you hate your brother, you're demonstrating that you are not in Christ. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother, flip side, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. or There is no stumbling block within him, quite literally. So on the flip side, if you love your brother, that's evidence that you are in the light. If you love your brothers and sisters, it's evidence that you are in Christ Jesus. Verse 11. But whoever, just to reiterate this and make this crystal clear, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's pretty clear. It's not hard to understand. If you are in Christ, in the light, you will love your brothers and sisters. It's evidence that you're legitimate. If you hate your brothers and sisters, on the other hand, That is evidence that you are not, in fact, in Christ. You are not in the light. You are in darkness and you don't know where you're going. In other words, in our common vernacular, you're lost. Now, I want us now to move into three points for like deeper consideration. They're from the text, but I want us to kind of drill down in more detail and think together about three things. Number one. This is quite clear from the text, and it's obvious to all of us. Number one, we are to keep Christ's commandments. We are to keep Christ's commandments. I was, again, on social media. I put something up the other day, and a guy raised some concern just about the emphasis on justification. I said, brother, I was thinking in my own mind, just come to CBC on Sunday. I'm going to be preaching a sermon about obeying Christ's commandments and loving the brethren. You know, like, just calm down. Like, here we go. All right, so friends, number one, we are to keep Christ's commandments. Now, God's commands, I think we can all agree about this in the room. God's commands, the commandments of Christ, are the standard and the guide for our lives, period. God's commands are the standard and the guide for our lives, period. So that means that we, as human beings, are not the authority. That means that our reason is not the highest authority. It means that our feelings are not the highest authority and determinator or determiner of truth. Our desires are not in the place of highest authority. Now, don't misunderstand that. Because sometimes in this conversation, the world at least can misunderstand us and think that we're just completely abandoning reason or we're completely abandoning emotion or abandoning desire. Not true. We're human, made in God's image with all of those faculties. We use our reason. We feel. We desire. But the key is that the aim of the Christian is to make all of those things, reason, emotion, desire, subservient to God's word. That's the key. We exercise reason. We use and experience emotions deeply. We have desires that are intense and we trust being recalibrated by God's Spirit, but we submit all of those things willingly 
to the word of God. That's the difference. We put the word of God and what the Lord has said in that place of highest authority. So that if my reason differs with what scripture says, or my feelings differ with what scripture says, or my desires differ with what scripture says, our reaction is not, well, the Bible must be wrong. Our reaction is, no, I must be wrong. And I need to readjust. I need to reevaluate and recalibrate where I am. That's the difference, right? Christians, taking John straight, straight up here from his words, Christians keep Christ's commandments. Let me frame it to you this way. Quite simply, that statement is true. Christians keep Christ's commandments because it is not possible. It is not possible to genuinely know God and remain unchanged. It is not possible to genuinely know God and remain completely unchanged. The transformed life, in other words, is real. Now we're going to think in just a minute, I'm going to qualify some of this, but we have to acknowledge this reality. Yes, we struggle. Yes, we're imperfect. Yes, we sin. And our lives are transformed in Christ. Both are true. Where there is no transformation of life, and by no transformation of life, I mean no transformation of life. Where that's true, there is no reason to think that the new birth has occurred. So if a person's life, and I'm using my words carefully here, so listen to me. If a person's life is characterized by disobedience to the commands of God, if a person's life is characterized by a lack of concern about that disobedience, if a person's life is characterized by indifference toward the things of God, there is no reason to think that person knows God. So the issue here, friends, is an issue of what characterizes a person's life high level. This is an issue, in other words, of trajectory and not perfection. You tracking with me? So to say that the trajectory of a person's life is that of keeping Christ's commandments is what we're talking about. Not a life of perfect keeping of Christ's commandments. John has already exploded that idea with verse 8 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2. We're clearly not talking about perfection. When the apostles in general write of how we are to live, or they even will write about the righteousness of the faithful. That's in the New Testament. They do not, when they write of that, the righteousness of the faithful, ever exclude the work of Christ in the place of the Christian. They start there, right? That matters. So when we're thinking about righteousness and obedience, it always starts with the work of Christ in the place of the Christian. And then it goes from there. Just like we were talking about earlier, our sanctification, the transformation of life, starts at that justification reality and it's grounded in that. I trust Christ. I get his righteousness. He pays for my sin. I am free in Christ. That's the baseline. And then from there, we are changed. All the while, 
looking to Christ for the ground of our standing before God. That's the apostolic pattern. One way I might put it is that we live from our justification, not in pursuit of it. We live from our justification, not in pursuit of it. That's important that we would understand that distinction. We're not striving to obey so that we might be justified. No. We strive to obey because we have been justified. So for the Christian, in thinking about this obedience piece, there are some things that in a real and sincere way ought to characterize his or her life for the believer. One of those things that would characterize the Christian is desire to keep God's commands. Real, sincere desire to keep God's commands. Second, real and sincere striving. That means effort to keep God's commands. So it's intentional. We don't just kind of wake up and say, okay, well, I'm trusting Christ and I'm just going to put it on cruise today. No, it's like I'm trusting Christ and I'm resting there. And then within that freedom and within that rest, I work to honor the Lord. A third thing that would characterize the Christian is real and sincere obedience. Like we really do obey. We're quick, you know, a lot of times to want to evaluate and quantify how we're doing. And that's just detrimental when it comes to this conversation. Many in the room I know are perfectionists. I'm one of them. Many in the room have tender consciences, right? You're sensitive to your failures. But when you're wired like that, you tend to see ways that you fail more than you know, you're aware of, ways you're growing. That's why you need the church. One of the reasons, you need brothers and sisters in your life to help you evaluate you. Now, sometimes that evaluation is less than pleasant, right? It's like, hey, I'm seeing something in your life that's concerning. But oftentimes in the church, I think you'll find that it's actually a very encouraging reality too. Somebody will come up to you and will say, hey, I've seen this in your life and you should be encouraged. Like that is evidence of the work of God's spirit in you. God gets the credit for it, but be encouraged, right? That happens. It should be happening. So that's an encouragement to you. If you are observing change in people's lives in this church, tell them. Tell them. Because it is a source of great encouragement to them, I promise you, in their walk with the Lord Jesus. So there is real obedience. Not perfect, but real. It's happening. And this, again, I've said this before in in a number of different contexts. This word trajectory is critical. Like we are so short-sighted and we are so consumed with like the last week rather than like the last decade, right? So if you're trying to assess your own life, even back up, like pan out and look at the trajectory and the long-term trend. You might think, well, I've been struggling in this way or this way for the last six months. But then if you look at the last six years, it's like, whoa, like I really, I really do see change. And I see how much I've grown in my understanding or I've grown in my humility or I've grown in my love or my compassion or I don't seem to struggle in that way quite to the same extent. Praise God. You see those things over the long haul. These things, desire to keep God's commands, striving to keep God's commands and real obedience describe the life of the believer in terms of a trajectory, 
in terms of a characterization of the believer's life. So John, remember, is writing to Christians who are in a difficult church context. And my, again, understanding of this letter is not that he is writing to his primary audience to cause them to doubt themselves, but he's saying, look, those people who were leaving you, they weren't concerned with obedience. Those people who have tried to lead you astray, they're not loving the brothers. You actually are concerned with obedience and you are aiming to love each other. You ought to be encouraged that you are the real thing. And as your pastor, I would say the same thing to you. In this congregation, imperfect as we are, we acknowledge that. I mean, it's on our material. Imperfect as we are, the Lord is doing good things in you. I see it. Ron sees it. Many of you see it. And those things should be of great encouragement to you, that you are, in fact, the real thing. You are legitimately in Christ Jesus. Second point for our deeper consideration is this new commandment. Second point, the new commandment, the new commandment that's old, the old commandment that's new, the Pop-Tart reality. So how did Jesus in his earthly ministry, at least before the last night on earth, right, before John 13 in that last supper, when he was challenged by the Pharisees and the lawyers How did he summarize the law and the prophets? We read it earlier. The Pharisees came to him, tried to trap him. One of the the lawyers among them wanted to test him and asked him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is from the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6, right? And then he says in a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What he's saying there is that in terms of God's exhortation to his people in terms of how to live, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, summarizes that very well. What Christ is saying, in one sense, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, right, that the Ten Commandments you also realize, or at least we will now, the Ten Commandments are obviously not the totality of God's law, but they are a summary of it, right? They're a useful summary of God's law. There are two tablets, two tables that that law is written on. The first table of the law, the first four commandments, deal with how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make an image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath, right? The second table of the law, commandments five through 10, have to do with how we relate to other people, right? Honor father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. So what Christ is saying in one sense, summing up the law in love God, love neighbor, is that that love God and love neighbor sums up the Ten Commandments. It sums up the first and the second table of the law, how you relate to God, how you relate to man. So then the question can be asked, when Jesus gives his new commandment in John 13, the last night he's on earth, the last hours he'll spend with his disciples, in John 13, what is he summarizing with that new commandment? I would say that he is 
summarizing that second table of the law, how to love neighbor with that new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. So this is how that new commandment is also old. The new commandment is a summary of something very old. The new commandment to love one another is a summary of what God had revealed in his law to his people that does not change and does not go away. Now, I want us to consider this as a part of this this whole point. This second piece is, is probably the longest of the three. So as we're thinking about the new commandment Christ gives, love each other, we need to start by acknowledging this baseline reality also. Christ's love for us, like even in the way he words that, just as I have loved you, love each other. Not only is it the model, Christ's love for us is the source of our love for others. His love, in other words, makes our love possible. And it's safe to say that no one has ever loved like him. What did Christ's love for us look like? I mean, we could talk about this for the rest of our lives. We sing about it. We herald it. Just a few things for us to consider this morning. I mean, first of all, his love for us saved us. His love for us redeemed us. It quite literally purchased us. He loved us so much that he gave his own life in exchange for ours. He laid himself down so that we might be redeemed and be with God forever. His love for us is also completely undeserved by us. It is, in other words, unmerited, like by definition. We could never earn it. His love for us is grounded in grace. His love for us, quite obviously, was sacrificial already thought about that, laying himself down. He suffered in our place. By his wounds, we have been healed. Surely he has borne our transgressions, right? And carried our sorrows. His love for us also forgives sin. Like legitimately, he's holy. God is holy. And his love forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's different than you forgiving someone. It's different than me. I'm a sinner too. For me to forgive you is not that big a deal, really. But for a sinless, infinitely holy being to forgive a sinner is a huge deal. And Christ's love forgives sin. Christ's love also is a refuge for sinners. Not only does he forgive sinners, it's a refuge his love is for sinners. As has been beautifully written, come guilty ones weighed down with sin, the freedom you long for is found in him, hide away in the love of Jesus. His love is also rest for the weary saint. Again, I'm quoting some more sovereign grace music here. Come wandering souls and find your home. He offers the rest that you yearn to know. Hide away in the love of Jesus. Christ's love is gentle. Christ's love is tender. His love is faithful. And it never comes to an end. So he's promised to always be with us, even to the end of the age. He has told us that he will lose none of his people. All the ones the Father has given him, he'll lose none of them. He'll raise us up on the last day. Right? His sheep 
the Father has given him, right? I will keep them. No one can pluck them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. There's security in the love of Jesus. He always lives to intercede for us, Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for his own. His love was also humble. Think Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Every way that Christ humbled himself. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but set it aside and took on human flesh and was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He himself said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Humble love. His love was compassion. Jesus had great compassion for sinners. Surely you know that. You've read the Gospels. It's clear. He came, he said this, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. I came not for the well, but for the sick. It was actually those who had confidence in themselves that they were righteous that Jesus was hard on. If you read the Gospels, that's just clear. Where he is direct and kind of puts the grenade on the table and pulls the pin is always in a context where people are trusting in themselves that they're doing well. He's exploding that kind of thinking. To the humble, penitent sinner, he is incredibly compassionate. Now, I'm going to say this, and I think this goes probably without saying here in this context, but I just don't ever want to take a chance. I've just kind of laid out what Christ's love for us looks like. And we're going to then think about what that means for our loving others, which we should do from this passage. Just to, again, be crystal clear. If Jesus is only our example, though, that's a damning reality. You realize that. Christ as example only is a damning reality because we can't live up to it. Christ as Savior and Redeemer first, and then as example. Now that we can get on board with. He saved us. We are righteous in Him. We are good with God through Him. And now we can follow Him in terms of His example. I trust that's clear, but here we go. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says in John 13, you are also to love one another. So if we're to walk as Jesus walked, as John says here in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we're going to do that, then we are to love as He loved. We are to seek to imitate His love for us in the way that we love our brothers and sisters. So the question is, what might that look like? Again, I'm going to give us a few things. One, our love for others, if we're going to love like Christ, should be sacrificial. Our love for others should be sacrificial, meaning we lay ourselves down for our brothers and sisters. This might not mean, probably won't mean, that you literally like lay your physical life down for somebody, maybe but you are figuratively doing that on the regular. You are considering others as greater than yourself, right? Laying myself down for the good of another. We are eager and ready to do that because that's what Jesus did for us. It means that we are genuinely seeking the good of others even when it costs us something. Love is costly. It costs you to love people, but we're eager to spend that capital because of the way Christ has loved us. A second thing, 
If we're going to love like Christ, our love toward others should be gracious. Our love should be gracious. This means that our brothers and sisters do not have to earn our love. It's given freely. This is a big deal in America, and it's a big deal in just our modern context. Because we have such a like law mentality and such a justice kind of complex wired into us. And some of that's good. But it harms this reality, relationships, because we always deal with people in that kind of cycle that we considered in the marriage series of law, transgression, judgment. Law, you break it, I judge you. You've got to earn my love for you. Not if we're loving like Christ, you don't. It's given freely. Our love is grounded in grace and not merit. Third thing that would characterize our love for others, if we're going to love like Christ, is that our love is forgiving. Our love is forgiving. This means we forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us. Even when that, like, that sin is real and it hurts, and maybe the pain's not all gone, we forgive. And we don't, like when Christ tells Peter, you know, Peter asks Jesus, like, well, how many times am I supposed to get forgive my brother? Like up to, you know, seven times. And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven, meaning like a big number, kind of an infinite number of times. You forgive your brother if he confesses his sin to you. And notice Jesus doesn't qualify this with some of the crazy things we do. Because a lot of times in the church, in our context, when people like sin in a way that's demonstrable and then they ask for forgiveness, it's like, well, you need to demonstrate genuine repentance. You know, that's our first thing. It's like, well, we need to determine, we need to take some time to discern whether your repentance is genuine. I'm not saying we should throw discernment out the window, but Christ's imperative and command to us is forgive each other. Give your brother or sister the benefit of the doubt that he or she is sincere in asking for forgiveness and forgive him. Forgive her. And we'll sort the rest out later, right? That should be the posture. We forgive. Fourth thing that would characterize our love for each other is humility. It's not a shocker. Humility. So our relationships with one another in the church ought to be marked by humility. And I mean, just to demonstrate how imperfect we are, think about how often our relationships are not marked by humility. Our, our relationships are so often marked by something very ugly, pride and selfishness and all these things. Humility is is a big deal. It's a, it's a prerequisite to service in the church. Full stop. Like, if you're going to serve in the church, humility is a prerequisite. It should mark our service and it should mark our relationships. Fifth thing that would characterize our love for each other is compassion. Compassion, if we're going to love like Christ. This means that we have compassion for fellow pilgrims on the way. We realize that people will sin. We know that. Fellow strugglers. But then even in those failures, even in light of the reality of sin, as I've already alluded to, we assume good in our brothers and sisters. We don't look at them through cynical lenses. And we give people room to genuinely wrestle and genuinely groan under the weight of sin. Last thing. For today, this is not exhaustive, obviously. If we're going to love as Christ loved, our love is gentle. Our love is gentle. So this means we're not harsh, we're not violent. 
think like Galatians 6.1. It's a great verse. If anyone is caught in sin, trapped in sin, those of you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch over yourselves lest you too be tempted. Some takeaways from that verse. One, people are trapped in sin. They're ensnared in it. Two, be gentle in your posture. Three, be humble because you could fall in the same way. Galatians 6.1, it's a great verse to write down. Our love should be gentle. We should seek to restore people with a spirit of gentleness on the regular. Remember, we follow a Savior who does not break bruised reeds. Bruised reeds are fragile, man. We follow a Savior who does not put out smoldering candles that are just barely flickering. We ought to strive to not do that either. Third big consideration, so this is leaving point two into point three, and this is our last consideration for today. Third truth for more time, love, love is a banner that flies over the church. I'm going to explain what I mean. Love is a banner that flies over the church. I might say more precisely, love one another is a banner that flies over the church. So we are given particular instruction in God's word, no doubt. There are certain places, New Testament even, where there's some detail about how we're to live. And at the same time, you know this very well, most of the issues we deal with in the Christian life are questions of reasoning from biblical truth, right? Because the Bible does not speak specifically to every single issue, every single controversy that could ever arise. It gives us high-level truth. We reason from that, and then we trust the Lord, and we aim to live in a way that pleases Him. The Bible was not intended to be a step-by-step manual. It was intended to tell the story of what God is doing through Christ and then to give us high-level instruction, heart-level instruction as far as how we are to live. So when it comes to our interaction with one another in the church, the overarching high-level command that honestly supersedes all others is love one another. That's what I mean by that banner. It flies like this is something that ought to be like on the seal and on the material and all that kind of stuff. Figuratively speaking, it ought to be in the front of our minds always love each other. So whether we're thinking about Christ's words in John 13, which we've already considered, or if you think about Paul's famous words from 1 Corinthians 13 about how important love is and how it doesn't matter how many awesome things you're doing in the name of God. If you don't have love, it's worthless, he says. So this kind of high, the the way the Bible works is hard for us sometimes. Giving us this like, command, love each other. We would prefer that it be kind of broken down and codified. We would. We love codification, man. I mean, we are just like, let's be real for a minute. We're just like the Pharisees, right? What did the Pharisees do? I mean, this is reductionistic, right? They were in every good meaning attempt to follow God had codified life so that we do all this stuff and this is what, you know, godliness looks like and all of this external stuff kind of in one sense will produce the inward change and all this kind of business. We could talk about it some other time, but it was well-intentioned. We want to honor God and here's all these things. We are just like that. 
let me, like God, codify it for me. Let me input all the variables and then kind of out pops the answer. Thank you. That's what we like, but it's not what scripture gives us. It's not what the apostles give us by and large. There are some specific cases mentioned by the inspiration of the spirit, but by and large, it's this kind of thing. Love each other. So here's an example. We're going to be thinking more about this after the service next Sunday. We've got a sort of special elder address on Christian liberty and issues of conscience. Meat, sacrifice to idols, was a real issue in the early church, right? Because many of the new believers had come out of paganism, had come out of, you know, sort of like this, um, you know, Greco-Roman sort of pantheon of gods. And, you know, they're being sacrificed to in the temple. And there's all this meat there that's then sold in the marketplaces, you know, and it's a good value buy. You get more bang for your buck, right? And so it's common for people not only to buy it in the market, but sometimes even go to the temples and eat it. And so Paul addresses this, that there are some in the church who are stumbling, who are being sort of drawn back into sin potentially by that. They're being pulled back towards paganism by what is happening in the church, people eating meat sacrificed to idols. Paul acknowledges the issue. He points out what the truth is, right? That eating meat sacrificed to idols is of no issue whatsoever. You have freedom to do it. It's meaningless. I mean, it's sacrificed to a God who is no God. He talks about that. He acknowledges the reality, though, of the weaker brother and sister who's being harmed by the practice of some Christians. Here's the kicker. Notice what Paul does not do. Paul does not make a blanket prohibition statement. He could have just settled it forever and be like, no meat sacrificed to idols should ever be eaten by a believer, full stop. He doesn't do that. He tells them to do something much harder. He says, love each other, right? That's just one example. We're going to think about it more next week when it comes to liberty issues and issues of conscience. But this is how scripture works, love each other. So I want to leave you with just a couple of pastoral thoughts. And I, whenever I give these, I like to be very careful. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is my advice. Some wisdom from me that I hope is helpful for us. So first, pastoral thought. When it comes to what love looks like, some of it is obvious, some of it's not. You're like, thanks, brother, that's profound. On the obvious part, there are a lot of things that are loving that I don't need to open the Bible to explain to you that they're loving. That makes sense? Like seeking another person's good or pursuing peace or seeking understanding, etc., etc. If I need to open the Proverbs to convince you that that's loving, we should have another conversation. There are also a lot of things that aren't loving that I also would not need to open the Bible up in order to convince you that they're not loving. Like, for example, it's like, hey, you know, when you get into an argument, you know, with your spouse, it's probably not good to throw things at each other. Like, that's clear. Or, you know, like, we, we probably shouldn't slander people. You know, like, okay, that's obvious. It's not loving. But then there are going to be other things that aren't as obvious. And this is where an understanding of God's word is necessary. And this will take place over the course of your life. We seek the truth, we read God's word, we sit in gatherings like this, we sit under the preaching of the word, we hear it read aloud so that we might have an appropriate definition of love. So seek that. 
Seek to define things, even how you define love. Seek to define it as God does. That's just number one. Some of it's obvious, some of it's not. For the stuff that's not obvious, it's where you especially need scripture because you will go astray. Second piece. So I think for many of us in any given situation, the problem is not that we have no idea what love would look like. It's just that we're so consumed with ourselves and our own ends that we tend to just run over other people. And that's the real issue, right? It's not that we don't have any clue what love would look like. It's just that we're sinners and we're selfish. And we seek our own good and not the good of others. So we would be well served in any given scenario. This is kind of a practical tip. In any given scenario that you find yourself in, especially when like, you feel your temperature rising and your blood pressure is going up and you have that visceral reaction and whatever that looks like for you. Some people that's kind of the silent shutdown. For others, it's explosion. For some people, it's sharp words. Whatever that looks like for you and you feel that coming on, you would be well served and so would I to just stop for a second, ask the question, what would it look like in this situation for me to love that person? What would it look like in this situation for me to love that person? Might save us from a few errors, maybe many, who knows? The great news, friends, of not only 1 John, but of the entire Bible is that we, because of Jesus, can pursue greater obedience and greater love without fear of condemnation. That's good news for you today. You can pursue and strive after greater obedience and greater love for one another without fear of condemnation because of Christ Jesus. Amen, somebody. God's commands, remember this too. We'll talk about this a lot through the course of this letter. God's commands are a joyful thing for the Christian. They are not a shackle. They are not bondage. They are a joyful thing for the believer. They don't condemn us any longer. What you're doing, so as I've already said today, what you're doing here, CBC, in obeying and loving one another, it should be not only a great encouragement to you, it should also inspire you and stir you up to do so all the more. So that should be our prayer. Even today as I close us, we'll pray for that, that God would continue the work that he started and that he would continue to stir us up to greater obedience and greater love. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you and we pray for just this. We thank you, first of all, for that great foundational bedrock reality of the righteousness of Christ for us. We thank you for him, for his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you that we are in good standing (coughs) with you because of Christ. And we pray that you would work in us by your spirit. We trust that you already have been at work in us. You've been at work in this body. We see ways that, that people are growing in love for one another and ways that people are growing in obedience. Father, what you've been doing by your spirit, we pray that you would do it all the more. We know that we are incapable of producing it in our own strength. So we pray that you would work in us and through us to complete the good work that you have begun. Give us faith and give us confidence in you as we strive, as we love, as we obey. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.